God, we are so very thankful for, Lord, just another Sunday to be able to be gathered together and sit under the authority of your word. God, we do not take these moments lightly. Lord, I pray as we approach this text that we would not do so flippantly, but Lord, that we'd be expectant of a work that you are about to do through your spirit and through your word. Lord, a work that we cannot do on our own, a work that can transform us, a work that can reveal the deep places of our hearts. God, we want that today. We're not here playing a religious game, but we're here because we want to be changed. We want to look more like Jesus. We want to encounter you. So Lord, work in that way, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1989, a tennis superstar, Andre Agassi, is only 19 years old when he starred in this TV commercial for Canon cameras. Uh, in, in the commercial, he's in all these incredible poses, and the commercial is all about kind of this camera that's kind of shooting these, uh, these different shots kind of repeatedly over and over again. But towards the end of the commercial, uh, Andre Agassi steps out of this white Lamborghini, and he's dressed in this all-white suit, and he stares into the camera to, to say his only line in the commercial— just three words. He stares right into the camera. He's got the smile on his face, really kind of this, this serious gaze. And he says, image is everything. Image is everything. And the ad just kind of went crazy. The, the commercial like exploded his popularity. He began hearing that slogan over and over and over again uh, after it was released. He began hearing it, you know, like five or six times a day to over 10 times a day to just endlessly, wherever he went, people are shouting that, that slogan at him, image is everything. In his autobiography, he talks about the shock of that, how the, the slogan um, stuck and how he couldn't shake it. That image is everything actually became Agassiz's image, one that he spent years trying to escape. In his autobiography, he says that overnight, the slogan became synonymous with me. Crowds yelled the phrase at me, whether I won or lost, because who needs tennis trophies when you can lose in style? What really frustrated him is that the slogan, it mocked his tennis goals and his athletic aspirations, but it also changed him. It made him cynical and callous to crowds and irritated by journalists and eventually sickened by the public gaze. You know, perhaps Agassi was a victim, but a victim not so much of this scripted line in a commercial, but a victim of this new impulse in our culture, this new impulse that says it's possible to divorce image from substance. That's really what an image is. It's a, a representation of something. It's an object that makes space between appearance and substance. Tony Ranke talks about this idea in, in his book. He says that in a world dominated by the image instead of character, the interior life gives way to exterior show. That substance gives way to simulation. We do, in fact, live in a world in which image is everything, and yet that image is all about the external. That's why social media influencers are so successful. That's why celebrity culture exists. 
It's why, in part, why uh, consumerism thrives. Because every shiny cover, every ad, every commercial, every entertainment medium and social media platform, they are all proclaiming the same message. That how you look, what you own, where you live, what you wear, what you drive, determines your worth and your significance. The social axiom of our day is, in fact, image is everything. Now, this pervasive message is not new. (laughs) This is not a unique mindset only for the 21st century. It's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. In fact, we see that same mindset here in 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're going to be looking at these first uh, 13 verses of this chapter, and finally, we're going to be introduced to David, the next king of Israel, but we're also going to be challenged with what God thinks about that pervasive message, image is everything. There will be challenged today to, to kind of uh, identify areas in our own life where we have fallen into that mindset, and we're going to be challenged to see what God truly values. Let's jump in. Looking at these first five verses, we uh, notice God's providential plan. God's providential plan. Uh, Chapter 16 very much opens in a very similar way as the last chapter ended, with Samuel still mourning for Saul. Chapter 15 revealed God's final rejection of Saul as king over Israel. And we noted how that didn't surprise God, but it also moved him. It actually moved Samuel as well. He was deeply grieved over this, likely experiencing a full range of emotions, sadness, frustration, disappointment. We don't know how much time elapsed between chapter 15 and chapter 16, but verse 1 displays Samuel still in a state of grief. Looking at verse 1, God isn't downplaying Samuel's grief because Ecclesiastes chapter 3 does remind us that there's this time and a season for everything, time to mourn, a time to rejoice, So from God's perspective, Samuel has mourned long enough and it's time to move on. Samuel was not to be so overwhelmed by this tragedy of what happened to Saul to the point that he would fail to see God's hand in it and God's purpose beyond the disappointment. God has a new assignment for his prophet Samuel. It's time to select a new king. Now, the plan that's in place here that we see in these first couple of verses in choosing the the new king is very similar to the first plan when he chose Saul. Samuel's not told who it is until the very last moment. He's given clear directions on where to go. And notice, he's being told to go to Bethlehem. This is the smallest town in all of Judah. Go to Bethlehem, look for Jesse and his sons. Samuel is currently about 11 miles away from Bethlehem in Ramah, and he fills his, his horn with oil, so he's ready to anoint the next king. And yet what's driving all this activity for Samuel is the end of verse 1. God says, for I have provided for myself a king among his, Jesse's, sons. It's important. It kind of sets the stage a little bit about what's happening here, that despite Saul's failure, God is still very much in control of his kingdom. God has a plan. He's he's providing for his people even when it seems like all is coming undone. But the more exact translation of that phrase in the Hebrew is this. It says, God says, I have seen among Jesse's sons for myself a king. 
that God sees. In fact, seeing is a major theme in this chapter. The Hebrew root word for seeing appears seven different times in chapter 16. So verse one is kind of tipping us to the major point, the main point of this entire chapter, where it's kind of foreshadowing the fact that God sees in a very specific way, unlike us. God has a different point of view than we do. God's vision is perfect. He sees in a way that we cannot. And God sees an individual, a king, that he has set apart for himself. It's very different than what we've seen so far. We've seen God's people choose a king for themselves to be like all the other nations. Chapter 8, chapter 12 highlighted. This one will be different. This is one that God chooses for himself. Now, when Samuel arrived in Bethlehem, he's met with the residents there, the elders, who are very nervous about his presence. We don't exactly know why. Maybe when the prophet showed up, especially to a small town, he's, he's there to maybe correct some things or discipline, or maybe they were just aware of what he did at the end of chapter 15. Remember, at the end of chapter 15, uh, Samuel hacked to pieces King Agog, and that probably spread, and so they're probably very afraid of, of why is Samuel here in Bethlehem. So verse four, they ask him, do you come in peace? And Samuel answers, yes, I come in peace, but I've also come to make sacrifices to the Lord. And he ensures that Jesse and his sons attend. Now, this is not lying. This is what God told Samuel to say. It wasn't untrue, but Samuel also didn't include every detail of why he was there in Bethlehem. They simply ask him, do you come in peace? And he answers the question truthfully, yes, I come in peace. That's a, that's a true and honest response. But he doesn't include unnecessary details to draw attention to this historic moment in Israel's history. And so the scene is set and the plan is in motion. God, through Samuel, is going to anoint the next king. Okay, so Samuel is with Jesse's sons. They're together. And in verses 6 through 10, what we're going to see here is a stark contrast between the way that Samuel sees and how and what he values compared to how God sees and what God values. If you look at verse 6 with me, we're told that Jesse and his sons arrive, and yet Samuel locks in on the oldest son, Eliab. Verse 6 literally reads in the Hebrew, when they came, Samuel saw Eliab. Eliab is the, the oldest. He's likely the tallest and the strongest. And he probably reminded Samuel of Saul. And Samuel just concludes, this is the one. This is our guy. And yet, what we're going to find out is that Samuel was seeing and assessing from a different set of values than God. That he was valuing the outward appearance. Because look at verse 7. It says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the hearts. God sees differently than we do. Now, one commentary that I was reading this week noted that verse 7 is the most important verse in all of 1 Samuel and in all of 2 Samuel. 
I read that and I was like, whoa, like that's a bold claim. But then he went on and he said that verse seven is really the key to understanding life, the universe, and everything. I almost fell out of my chair when I was reading that. I was like, what? Like, am I understanding verse seven correctly? Like, what is verse seven all about? And I actually, I spent a lot of my time this week just looking at verse seven. I actually learned something that I had not seen before from verse seven. There's actually two different ways, two different meanings to verse seven, and both are true. And they're both really convicting. Let me share you uh, share with you what I learned. The first way to understand verse seven is probably the way that we probably all understand verse seven, is that it's saying that God's vision is perfect. God's perceptivity is without error. And the reason for that is because God does not evaluate based on the outward appearance, but God sees us for who we truly are. God sees our hearts. He sees our character. He sees our maturity. He sees the, the substance of the person and his vision is perfect. A couple of days ago, I went to my optometrist, my eye doctor, and, uh, and I was really excited uh, to go and see her because about a year ago, the last time I was there, she changed my prescription for my contact lenses, making them less powerful. And I, and I was kind of confused. I didn't know that was a thing. As you age, your eyes get stronger. I always thought they got weaker. Well, about a year ago, you know, I did the eye exam and I'm pretty competitive. And so I kind of treated it as, as a game. And, um, and I, I think I won too well because they, they kind of lowered the, the strength of my contact. So the last year, I, like I haven't been blind by any means, but I just haven't seen as clearly as I had in the past, right? Things aren't like blurry, but I can notice, you know, far out. I'm just like, is that a sign saying, you know, so I was looking forward to getting that corrected. So a couple of days ago, I go in there and, um, you know, I take the exam. I didn't try as, as, as hard as I normally do. And, uh, and sure enough, uh, I got my prescription changed, changed uh, to what it was. And now I can see so much better. And I was just reminded about the importance of seeing. I was, I was reminded about how even like the slight adjustment can change you from seeing something to actually seeing something. And I think that's true for us as we think about just our physical sight for a moment, that there is a difference between seeing something and actually seeing something. Like sometimes we don't see the, the whole picture. Maybe you don't have 20-20 vision, but we, we oftentimes, physically speaking, we don't see the whole thing. I definitely think that's true physically, but it's also true when we think in terms of seeing and understanding what is valuable and what is of highest importance that we don't always see clearly. We tend to see and value the outward appearance, the external. We tend to see and value the superficial or the, the temporary, and we don't see well enough. We have a limited experience, limited knowledge, limited information, and we make mistakes, just like Samuel made a mistake here in verse six. So we always need our sight and our ability to perceive to be corrected, that's very different than God. God doesn't need to see an eye doctor. His vision is perfect. His ability to perceive and know is without error. God's not deceived by outward appearances. When he sees you, 
He sees all of you. He sees the real you. His vision is perfect. Now, as we reflect upon that reality, there's, there's a danger there that we need to just stop and reflect on. The danger is that you and I, we can value the external and the outward appearance so much more than the inward person that it's very possible to separate behavior from the condition of your heart. It's very possible to divorce your actions and your behavior from even your motivations. That you can say all the right things and do all the right things, and yet your heart can be far from the Lord. You can value superficiality above deep maturity and character. Jesus warns of this in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 23. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like white washed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Wow, that's some strong language from Jesus. You see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying it's very possible to, on the outside, look beautiful and appear to be righteous. And yet, that's just a whitewashed tomb. On the inside, you're dead. You're, you're lifeless. And you're fooling people. Look, when you think about that description, does that describe you this morning? Where on the outside, you look spiritual. You look like you're righteous, like you're godly, like you're one of those serious, committed Christians. And yet on the inside, you're numb and callous and lifeless spiritually. Maybe because there's unaddressed sin that's just kind of roaming around in your heart and instead of putting it to death, you're just managing it, making sure that other people don't see it. Maybe on the outside, you look godly, you look righteous, and yet you've got all kinds of sin. You've got uncontrollable anger or rampant lust or continuous coveting or growing bitterness and resentment. Look, verse seven is, is a warning for us not to fall into the trap of obsessive image maintenance. This trap of, of taking this image and propping it up for everybody else to see, and yet that image is far from who you actually are. And so the majority of your time and energy is now dedicated to image upkeep, trying to manage how everybody sees you and views you. So you pour all of your time and energy into your outward appearance, making sure that you look a certain way instead of being a certain person. I gotta wear a certain kind of clothes and have the right kinds of possessions, make sure my family appears a certain way, make sure I attend the right spiritual and religious events and activity, but there's hardly any time and energy that's being dedicated to deepening your character developing your maturity 
and strengthening your thought life and guarding your heart, which is the wellspring of life. But could it be that you're spending the majority of your time and energy on things that God ultimately doesn't value or care about? That God values his highest priority for you is what is in here, your heart, your character, your maturity, your motivations, your thought life. God cares about who you are when no one is watching. God cares about what you do when no one is there to pat you on the back or say, well, well done. God cares about what you look at on the internet when no one is around you. God cares about your motivations for, for why you're kind to people, why you help people, why you serve at church. God cares about why you, you come to church, why you read your Bible, why you give money to the church. God, God cares about that level of who you are and he sees and he knows everything. He knows what you say about other people in your mind, in your heart, or in the comfort of your own home. You're not hiding anything from God Almighty. His vision is perfect. He sees you for who you actually are and you're not fooling him. Look, the reality is that that should absolutely terrify some of us today. That some of us are, are living kind of two lives. That there's an incongruence between who you are on the outward and who you are internally. And look, if that's you today, I just wanna plead with you just for a couple of minutes here. I wanna talk directly to you just for the next couple of moments. I wanna plead with you today to stop hiding. I wanna plead with you to bring all that you are, all of your struggles, and bring them into the light. To stop playing this game. I know if you're there, if you're sitting there and you're feeling the weight of that, I know you're probably feeling this trapped feeling right now because a lot of who you are is being hidden in the dark and there's power there. That's where that trapped feeling comes from, which will result in you feeling exhausted and you feeling enslaved. Exhausted because you're trying to manage all of these different images and enslaved because you think that there's no way out. And if that's you today, I just want to exhort you, stop playing the game, to bring all that you are before God Almighty. And I would exhort you to do that, not out of guilt and not out of shame, but I would exhort you and plead with you to do that because of the tender mercy and grace of God that I'm exhorting you today to bring all that you are before the Lord because I know, I know that the gospel is true. That the gospel is not just something that saves us from our sin for all of eternity, but the gospel of Jesus Christ actually enables us to live in full transparency before God because there's grace, because there's mercy. And what's amazing is that God already knows he already knows the real you. He sees it all. And there's a tremendous amount of freedom in that. And yet God will either be your judge one day 
to deal with you consequences you do not want, or he can be your loving surgeon right now to bring healing and freedom and transformation and grace right into your life. Like if you're feeling that right now, you're probably, you're probably feeling something that's very uncomfortable right now, deep in your heart. You're probably feeling a level of discomfort. And look, if you're feeling that, don't explain that away. Don't try to rationalize what's going on deep in your heart. That's likely the convicting work of God. That's where he's moving in your heart and what he's doing right now. And it's really uncomfortable. You feel the conviction of God. What he's doing is he's trying to uncurl this tight grip that you have around protecting your image. And he's beckoning you to step fully into the light so he can heal and give you grace and give you mercy. Don't resist that. Maybe you're wondering, well, how do you know there's grace? How do you know there's mercy? You don't know what I've done. Like, I know there's grace. I know there's mercy because I do know that the gospel is true. I know that the, the good news of Jesus Christ is available to anyone who humbles themselves, who takes off that mask and comes before God Almighty and says, God, I cannot fix myself. God, I've got sin. I've got secrets. I've got struggles and I'm done playing this game. God, do a work within my heart and my life. And when you come to that moment, what God does very powerfully is he takes all that Jesus accomplished on the cross and in his resurrection, and he applies it directly to your life. It's amazing. God takes what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. He hung on the cross. He paid for all of your sin all of even your, your secret sins that you think no one knows about, God knows about them. And Jesus paid for even those on the cross, that he's removed the guilt and the condemnation that as he hung there on the cross, he absorbed and received all of God's wrath that was supposed to be for you and for me. Jesus hung there and took all of it. And if you come to Jesus and say, I believe in what you did on the cross was for me. I put my faith in that, not in my own good works, but in what you did, then God will take all of that and apply it to your life so that your sins are paid for. There's now no condemnation over your life if you're in Christ Jesus. There's no more wrath left. It was all poured out upon God's son Jesus on the cross. So I plead with you, if you're playing that game, come into the light where there's grace and there's forgiveness and not condemnation. Bring that into the light. God sees and God knows. So that's the, that's the first way to understand verse seven. God's vision is perfect, but there's also another way to understand verse seven. And this is, this is kind of what I learned this week that yes, we can interpret verse seven to mean that God sees everything, but also we can understand this verse to mean that when God sees, he doesn't just see into our hearts, but God sees according to his own hearts. It's the same in the Hebrew. You can interpret it, translate that in both ways. And I think that's important even to be reminded that for the Hebrew, 
what the heart meant is that the heart was the decision-making center of a person. We tend to think that a heart is like feelings or emotions, not for the Hebrews. The Hebrew for heart, it's actually the will. So we could understand this verse to say that God sees according to his will, his sovereign will. So a more little translation of verse seven is for the Lord sees not as man sees, for man sees according to the eyes, but the Lord sees according to his heart or his will or his intentions or his purposes or his plans. God doesn't see and make decisions based on the external, but according to his sovereign purposes from eternity past. So the reason why Eliab, the oldest son, wasn't chosen to be king, it's not because he was tall and handsome. That doesn't automatically disqualify you. We're going to learn in a moment that David was actually handsome and was still chosen. So the outward appearance just doesn't even matter. We can move that to the side. Eliab wasn't chosen because it wasn't part of God's sovereign will and plan from before the foundations of the earth. God is not seeing the way that Samuel is seeing Samuel, again, is just seeing the eyes. God is seeing according to his will. We kind of saw this in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. That, that famous verse that says that the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And we highlighted the fact that that phrase, contrary to maybe what we learned in Sunday school growing up, that phrase is actually not highlighting the godliness of David. After all, he did some really bad things. He committed adultery, committed murder. He had several moments of not trusting in the Lord. But rather, that phrase is highlighting God's choosing of David based on and rooted in God's sovereign will. Not because David possessed something that God's like, ah, I'm gonna choose him to be the next king. No, it's because of God's sovereign purpose and plan. So that phrase, a man after God's own heart, is actually about the place that the man has in God's own heart rather than the place that God has in the man's heart. In fact, we see this in King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 21. He says, because of your promise, talking to God, and according to your own heart, same phrase in the Hebrew as our verse 7, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servants know it. Okay, so these verses are really highlighting God's sovereign will and purposes rather than just some qualities that David had that then caused God to choose him as the next king. And so all in all, verse seven, we can, I think, understand this in both ways about God's perfect vision, perfect sight. He sees everything but he also sees according to his own sovereign will. Okay, I know <laughs> several minutes on verse seven, it's that important. Um, I might actually agree with the commentator there. But verse, okay, verses eight through 10, come moving on here. Verses eight and 10, eight through 10, we see that Jesse starts to bring out one son after another, right? Now, Jesse is like, wow, we're about to hit the jackpot right? Like, like, you know, my son's going to be the, the, the heir to the throne. This is going to be a big deal. And yet each son after the next gets rejected. Seven sons in total are met with the words from Samuel, the Lord has not chosen these. 
So it begs the question, who will God choose through Samuel? Well, that takes us to verses 11 through 13. These verses reveal God's chosen king, and it's very surprising. Samuel has to ask Jesse, are these, are, are, are these all the sons you got? And Jesse says, well, there's one more, but he's the youngest. Or in the Hebrew, it could be the, the littlest. He's the, the smallest. He's just the, the little boy that's tending the sheep. And so even in Jesse's mind, David's father, like Jesse's like, David's not gonna be chosen. He, he's so unimportant, so ordinary, so unlikely that he's not even given the opportunity to go through the lineup with Samuel. In fact, we're, we're, not, even know, we're not even told his name until verse, verse 13. And so Samuel basically says, well, go get him. We'll, we'll wait. We'll wait for as long as it takes. Go get your youngest son. Jesse must have fallen out of the chair in surprise, thinking like, David? No, no, no. David's not going to be the next king. But he goes and he gets David anyways. David finally arrives, and there's nothing extraordinary about David at all. Like, yes, we're told that he's handsome and all that stuff, and uh, in the, he's got this reddish complexion or red hair, maybe it could be translated, but he's likely the smallest of all the sons, and he probably smelled like the sheep. And yet God says, that's my guy. That's, that's the man, that's the one I want to be the next king. It's so unlikely, so unexpected, and yet that's how our God works. David, the youngest of all the sons from the smallest town in all of Judah, Bethlehem, and yet he's selected as king. Why? Why is he selected as king? It's because David had a particular place in God's heart or God's will according to his plan. That's what separated him from Eliab and all of his other brothers. And so whatever noteworthy qualities that we're gonna see in David over the next several weeks, it's because of and not the reason for God choosing him as king. That the security of David's throne will rest on God's promises and not on David's performance. And that's what separates him from Saul and the others. I'll close with this, but I thought it was so interesting that our first encounter with David, and what is he doing? He's tending the sheep. I don't think that's by accident. Because if you remember, when we first met Saul, the first king of Israel in chapter nine, what was he doing? He was looking for his daddy's lost donkeys, which by the way, he was unsuccessful. And so the, the picture that's being painted of Saul is that he was a failed shepherd. And yet the picture that's being painted for David is that he is a caring and responsible shepherd. And I don't think that's by accident. I think that is symbolically showing us what the role of the king of Israel should be like. It should be like a shepherd, someone who is caring for God's people, leading God's people, protecting God's people. This is what God told David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from tending the sheep, that you should be king over my people Israel. David became king, but his job description remained the same. He just had a different flock. He went from tending the sheep of Jesse's sheep to tending the flock of God, God's own people. So God chooses a king 
who was a shepherd. I can almost guarantee that's not who you, not who I would have chosen. We probably would have chosen the strongest man in Israel or the military victor or the one who's the smartest or maybe the one who's the most popular and yet not God. God chooses a young shepherd from an obscure town to be king because this is showing us the heart of God. This is showing us actually what God is like, that God is the shepherd over his people. There's so many different ways that this passage points forward to Jesus. Obviously, Bethlehem mentioned four different times in chapter 16 and 17, the, the same town that Jesus was born into. But do you remember when Jesus came 2,000 years ago, he came as a shepherd type. Mark 6, he uh, feeding the 5,000, he looked out to the large crowd. He had compassion on them because they, like sheep, were without a shepherd. And of course, in John chapter 10, he identifies himself as the shepherd king. He says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. See, David, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to see him in chapter 17. He's going to be willing to lay down his life for God's people by standing against uh, the, the Goliath, the giant Goliath, in a one-on-one -on -one matchup, basically saying, I'm, I'm willing to die for God's people in God's name. He doesn't, but it's Jesus who does. Jesus, who a thousand years from now in chapter 16, will literally lay down his life for God's people by getting up on a cross and dying in our place. See, Jesus is the ultimate good shepherd. He is the shepherd that you and I desperately need because he's loving, he's caring, he's so compassionate, he's so patient that guess what he does? That even when we wander away from God's fold, he goes and he pursues us and he chases us down. He leaves the 99 and he runs after the one that is lost. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you have been that one sheep that's wandered away that God's pursued. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're the one that's lost, but guess what? Jesus is coming after you. He's pursuing you right now in this moment. He is chasing you down with his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. This is the good shepherd that we follow that it's all about Jesus. David will be a good king, but Jesus is even better. He's the best, and he's the one that we need. Let's pray together. God, would you stop and we give you praise for King Jesus, the great and ultimate shepherd of your people. God, we thank you that he is the type of shepherd who says to us, come to me, all who are burdened, and I will give you rest. He's the type of shepherd who tells us, cast your burdens, throw your burdens upon me, for I care for you. I promise to strengthen you and help you and uphold you by my righteous right hand. Thank you, Jesus, that you're not annoyed or frustrated with our burdens. Thank you that you're not surprised by them, but that you call us to bring all that we are before you. God, would you continue to do a convicting work in our hearts where we might find grace in our time of need. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.